Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Eric Dregney talks about Scandinavia House in Murray Hill. This standout building on Park Avenue, four blocks south of Grand Central Terminal, proclaims itself, quote, the leading center for Nordic culture in the United States. Visitors will know it mainly for its exhibits and educational programming, regularly featuring the best that Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and Finland have to offer. These ethnic groups are often depicted as being privileged among the 20 million immigrants who came to the U.S. at the turn of the last century, seen by eugenicists and the many others who ultimately close America's borders as genetically superior to the Catholics and Jews of Europe streaming in, and other non-white, quote-unquote, races. But Dregny, a professor of journalism who has published a recent history of this often neglected ethnic group, argues that Scandinavians often face the same treatment, even in New York City. Here, he uses the Nordic Center in Manhattan to discuss that history. For more podcasts like this, and for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening. At 58 Park Avenue, four blocks south of Grand Central Terminal, stands the austere, six-story Nordic-style building known as Scandinavia House, which proclaims itself the leading center for Nordic culture in the United States. Here at this prestigious address in the heart of Manhattan, a nonstop parade of artists, lecturers, and musicians come to showcase the most beautiful and interesting bits of modern Scandinavian culture in America's cultural headquarters, New York City. They were not always so welcome. In 1914, the U.S. House of Representatives Immigration Committee held hearings with New York's Medical Society to decide if the mentally defective immigrants coming by the millions from Southern and Eastern Europe, primarily, would dilute the so-called native stock. Eugenicists warn of direful consequences if immigrants were allowed to marry and to propagate and so deteriorate the mental health of the nation. Eugenics research came to the defense of Scandinavians because they were classed as superior and descended from Nordic or Aryan stock or from wealthy classes. But just a few decades earlier, Yankees saw these newcomers as wild men. Horace Glenn was typical. Writing home in 1901, the lumberjack complained about the Swedish laborers he had to fell trees beside nine-tenths of whom are roundheads, as he called them, the most disgusting, dirty, lousy reprobates that I've ever saw. I want to hit them every time I look at them. It is only evenings when I am forced to associate with these beasts that I get depressed. I am the first man out in the morning because walking two or three miles behind a string of Swedes is something impossible to a person with a delicate nose. It is an odor which only could come from generations of unwashed ancestors." Because of such attitudes, Swedes, like so many other immigrant groups in America, quickly assimilated, dropping any reference of their previous natural life to fit in more quickly with mainstream America. According to at least one study, they did so faster than any other ethnic group. The Danes also rapidly integrated, becoming part of established Midwestern society, whereas the Norwegians tended to stick together and even be a bit wary of other Scandinavians. Finns came later to the U.S. and were strangely classified as Asians because of historical links to the East and were therefore often denied U.S. citizenship. 
Anglos lumped all these Scandinavians together, but despite a common background, they often bickered and rarely united with pan-Nordic centers like Scandinavia House. So in this podcast, we'll be exploring the history of the Scandinavians in America, beginning with their arrival in New York. Here in the city, Norwegians still complained about these Swedish devils who occupied their country until 1905, and the Danes who similarly dominated Norway before then. But New Yorkers likewise put all these groups together under the catch-all Scandinavian. Before I set out to learn about the history of these neglected American immigrants and wrote several books on the subject, I'd heard that Scandinavians disappeared into the American melting pot with their old language quickly falling into disuse, as the immigrants supposedly wanted to learn English. But this perpetuated half-truth doesn't tell the tale of government agents spying on Scandinavians at the time, ostensibly rooting out socialist and dangerous anti-war activists. Settlers spoke English as a matter of self-preservation because any dissent was considered unpatriotic. Despite abject poverty in Scandinavia and the grueling ocean voyage, these Nordic immigrants also banded together eventually here in the U.S. just to survive. They withstood accusations of unholy rituals as they gathered in naked and sweaty saunas. They formed cooperatives to stave off brutal capitalist robber barons, and most importantly, they held on to their social democratic ideals, which still resonate in American politics today. The first group of Norwegians landed in New York in 1825, although some individuals had been in Manhattan as early as the 1600s. One Norwegian immigrant in 1836 extolled this new world as a land of Canaan, which produces so richly without fertilizer that Norway can no more be compared to America than a desert to a garden of herbs and blossom. More than 63,000 Norwegians ended up in New York, especially in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Bay Ridge. From there on, like other countries abroad, Scandinavians became the victims of a massive propaganda campaign. Optimistic letters sent home from immigrants in the U.S. passed from hand to hand and were published in scores of local newspapers in Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and Finland. One of the most influential booklets in Scandinavian history, Breve fra America, Letters from America, compiled the stories. Thereafter, an exodus began. The Glowing America Letters, combined with the Homestead Act, which parceled out cheap indigenous land, promised extra butter on everyone's porridge. So thousands of Scandinavians abandoned their homes in the hills for the greener grass in America, mostly the Midwest. Norwegians came because they were escaping desperate overpopulation in the poorest country in Europe. The earliest immigrants had to carry all of their food for the months-long voyage to survive the ocean trip. Dried fish, flatbread, salted meat, and dried split peas. And of course, coffee and butter. Fourteen Norwegians who sailed overseas in 1853 aboard an English vessel wrote that the ship was full of, quote, bruised heads, broken ribs, a broken collarbone, and teeth knocked out as a result of brutal treatment by seamen whose orders, given in English, we could not understand, 
of food thrown to the immigrants as if they were dogs, and of the immigrants fighting for it like animals, of bunks full of lice, of dangers of assault upon wives, sisters, and daughters. These excruciating voyages in large sailboats were filled with seasickness, lice, bedbugs, and many other uncomfortable, often dangerous, annoyances. A Danish immigrant wrote, You would have to search long and hard to find such a blasphemous brood of vipers. They were all rejects, foul language and cheating all day long. Steerage became a regular brothel. People gambled their clothes away and fistfights ensued. We had four prostitutes and at least five thieves. One thief stole from the next. Martin Lorenzen wrote in 1893, We had our food just like the pigs in Denmark. When we finally got to America, all our clothes were fumigated to disinfect them. Some wrote back home, warning that this promised land had lost its golden light. One Dane insisted, I maintain that only one out of 100 is truly happy here, and only 10 out of 100 eke out even a marginal existence. The others either meet disaster or lead miserable lives. Isolated and shunned in a foreign country with tears in their eyes, they look back to the fatherland where they had friends, relatives, and other sympathetic people. Another wrote, Admittedly, land can be had here at a good price and free in some places, but it is situated far from places of employment and trade. In this area, the poor man and his family have to live in a sod house, and the family breadwinner must seek employment elsewhere, separated from his wife and children. I will therefore advise every Danish man and woman to stay in peaceful Denmark. Scandinavian immigrants quickly consolidated political power. Swedish immigrants, in particular, became a driving political force in many areas, organizing Swedish-language newspapers and Skandinavien Visk Socialist Forbunde, the Swedish-language branch of Socialist Party of America. Others formed the Scandinavian Socialist Union in 1910 and shunned violence and pushed for democratic means to push their agenda. In 1891, Norwegians in New York formed the Norske Tidende, the Norway Times newspaper, to provide uncensored news to the large Norwegian community, especially in Brooklyn. The landed gentry often viewed these Scandinavians as dumb, drunk oxen. For example, the railroad baron James J. Hill declared, Give me Swedes, snuff, and whiskey, and I'll build a railroad through hell. Scandinavians were beasts of burden, like other immigrants, at least until they got organized. Like other immigrants, they were also skeptical of Yankee profiteers and capitalist robber barons using their critical mass to essentially bypass them with cooperatives and their native tongue. Still, many Scandinavian immigrants, like Dane L. Hansen, were perplexed at how, quote, the legitimacy of socialism was strangely called into question by so many in America. He wrote, I was amazed when I first came here last autumn to see capitalists marching together with the working class. Obviously, they try to pull the wool over the workers' eyes by flattering them. It is not too difficult to see that they are not doing it out of love. Those sneaky foxes deliver speeches flattering the workers because they cannot get along without them. Finnish immigrants were especially politically outspoken. 
and most came after the initial wave of Swedish and Norwegians settled in the Midwest. Some historians say that the Finns didn't bring over Marxist ideals because, quote, Finnish social democracy did not really firm up until 1899, and its strong center was industrial southern Finland, whereas most of the Masabi Finns came from the rural provinces. To quote the historian Hyman Behrman, Nonetheless, their backgrounds and experiences here led to what Behrman called a blossoming Finnish-American socialist movement. The Populist Party lured many Scandinavians as well. When it formed in 1890 on a platform of collective economic action by farmers and workers against the banks, merchants, and other entrenched market forces. The Great Depression of 1893, atop the mounting decline of market agriculture to industry, prompted an enormous agrarian uprising against what many viewed as a failing capitalist system. The Democratic Party took advantage of the chaos, luring Norwegians and other Scandinavians into the fold in the 1890s. Midwestern Democrats appealed to the small farmers and laborers who supported an end of laissez-faire, as did the progressive wing of the Republican Party, which, quote, sought to enact laws to protect the poor, ignorant, and defenseless, and to pass legislation to hinder the accumulation and abuse of wealth and power by a few. Scandinavians thus brought a unique vision of equality to the U.S., forming their own cooperatives, unions, and political action groups to push for a government and a market freer of capitalist corruption. Perhaps the social democratic ideal that has become the envy of other Americans is the co-op. The Scandinavians produce cooperative oil stations, factories, insurance companies, grain elevators, creameries, stores, telephones, and credit unions. Some preach the overturn of capitalism altogether, the dream of a cooperative commonwealth, which became, for a time, a national model seriously contemplated by leading new dealers, including FDR. Danes especially saw that they didn't need to be gouged by the abysmal prices for such things as milk and cream. Looking homeward, where poor farmers enjoyed the fruits of the cream separator and well-bred cattle. All these leaps forward came thanks to cooperatives. Rather than a typical top-down business approach, these co-ops operated on democratic premises, where each member had a stake in the creamery so they'd work hard to make it work. Solidarity allowed the operation to run more efficiently, with each of the members having a voice. And it made for social democracy. A Scandinavian co-op member proclaimed in 1925, The cooperative store should not be a mere business institution, but should be a factor, a weapon in the struggle for the emancipation of the working class. In the 19th century, co-ops were mostly a Scandinavian phenomenon. But by the 20th century, the model spread. Today, one-third of Americans are members of some sort of co-op, and cooperatives generate $652 billion in sale per year. Early Scandinavian immigrants thus believed that they could recreate the best of their home country in the U.S., while infusing it with the freedom and equality promised in America. Disillusioned, they looked at the progress being made in Scandinavia and sought to import it. That was just as true for women's suffrage. Sweden nominally claimed the prize as the first country to let women vote 
1718, fully extending the franchise in 1921, two years after the U.S. But Finland was the first country in the world to give women full rights to vote and be elected in 1906, a full 14 years before America. Finnish women thus actively participated in the suffrage movement here, as with a co-op, associational, and temperance movements. These uppity Scandinavian women fought the three evils of the day, liquor, prostitution, and war. They wanted prohibition, peace, and the right to vote. Anti-suffragists plastered posters everywhere, warning that, quote, women's suffrage would double the irresponsible vote. Presumably, the opposing party, or men, being the other half of the irresponsible vote? Back in their native Scandinavia, women's suffrage was old news. The U.S. was considered backwards for not letting women vote. In 1913, women's right to vote was defeated by 34 votes. They'd have to wait another seven years to exercise the suffrage. Scandinavian women's initiatives didn't stop there either. They recognized the necessity for early childhood education and pushed for state-financed kindergarten. They pushed for arts in the schools and education about other cultures, in particular, preserving the heritage of immigrant traditions at a time when most saw little use for such things. In the U.S., Scandinavian feminists like Clara Euland also championed an equal rights amendment banning discrimination based on gender. But although proposed in every session of Congress between 1923 and the 1970s, during the second wave of feminism, the ERA is still languishing in need of a majority of states. One of the conveniently ignored reasons for which men left Scandinavia for America was to escape military conscription. Self-preservation is a potent force, as is being morally opposed to killing. Many of these stories, however, went untold, that is, until the next war broke out. Many of the Finnish socialists who came here didn't advertise that they avoided military service in the ranks of the Tsar for antiquated slaughter. But they were also not keen on enlisting to go back to Europe to be gassed in the trenches of World War I. Karl Altin, an immigrant from Sweden, published Alarm in his native language, urging Scandinavians not to register for the draft. And many immigrants did resist. The Swedes earned a reputation as one of the most anti-war groups in the United States. But although many wanted a bigger say in politics and foreign policy, they couldn't stop the march to war. To keep these pesky Scandinavians in check at the beginning of World War I, Congress passed an Espionage Act and Trading with the Enemy Act, to punish the industrial workers of the world, made up of many Finns and other anti-war groups, especially for their disloyalty. The accused could be prosecuted for, quote, acts or utterances considered damaging to U.S. policy. State governments likewise started education programs, infiltrating different Scandinavian groups' meetings and rallies to make a list of radicals and, quote-unquote, slackers or just plain foreigners. These hyphenated Americans who define themselves as Swedish, Norwegian, before adding the word American, were seen as especially dodgy. One report claimed that misinformation and misunderstandings are more or less prevalent among Scandinavians. 
states often simply ban meetings of any groups suspected of favoring, quote, the idea of peace. Spies were sent to rallies and speeches with instructions to report any socialistic, anti-war, and anti-conscription tendencies to their superiors. The Russian Revolution complicated matters. After the Bolshevik coup, many Finnish political activists and socialists left for the U.S. to escape persecution or even execution. But once in the U.S., they had no intention of joining another army. Many feared that registration for the draft meant they'd have to leave immediately for the front. Others feared they might somehow be conscripted into the Russian army. But ultimately, the Scandinavians who successfully avoided conscription were a minority. After World War I, the attacks on socialist sympathizers continued as well. The U.S. government rounded up thousands, held in jail without charge during the first Red Scare of 1919. The Finnish were especially suspicious because few could understand the language, and Finns had helped found the industrial workers of the world. In spite of these concerted efforts, however, social democrats persisted. During the war, Scandinavian languages also came under fire, viewed as traitorous because, except for Finnish, they're somewhat similar to German. Those caught speaking them were accused of having foreign sympathies, or even spying for Kaiser Wilhelm. Iowa even outlawed the use of any language except for English to be spoken on telephones, which of course were bugged. The schools were especially cutthroat. One Scandinavian girl recalled her teacher writing the rules on the board, saying, Anyone who speaks Norwegian in the schoolhouse or anywhere near will be punished. Only one of the students knew English and had to translate for the rest of the class. Kids would be beaten for not speaking English, such as a young Swedish boy in Wisconsin who said, We never speak Swedish on the street. Olaf was roughed up by some of the Yankee boys in a restaurant last week. State governments set up commissions of public safety to root out Scandinavians with mixed loyalty who could be considered traitors. The commission employed, quote, virtually dictatorial powers to distribute pro-war propaganda and to restrict activities it considered hostile. They posted notices that read, don't be suspected, use American language, America is our home. Although most daily business transactions happened in their native language, true patriots abandoned their parents' language and Scandinavian culture to fit in and avoid suspicion. My own grandfather refused to teach Norwegian to me, saying, we're in America now. We speak English. It's just better that way. Clearly, he was scared. He knew no English when he went to kindergarten, but had to rely on a friend to translate. Up until this point, many Scandinavian immigrants had had little incentive to learn English. But other ethnic groups fared worse. The paranoia of World War I marked the beginning of the disappearance of Nordic languages in the U.S. But the early 1920s saw the revival of the Ku Klux Klan that had its main strength in the North, exploding to millions of members in just a few years, including numerous politicians, such as Harry Truman, who succeeded in forcing legislation that sealed the nation's border to all the Nordic Anglo races. The jury was out on what eugenicists thought of the Scandinavians. In response to anti-immigrant sentiment, Scandinavians assimilated. Like the other new major ethnic groups, Eastern European Jews, Southern European Catholics, 
but their integration was hardly total. And that was perhaps particularly true in New York City with its rich diversity. Political icons like Al Smith, Herbert Lehman, and Fiorello LaGuardia built their success in politics on direct, explicit outreach to America's beleaguered white ethnic minorities, and such appeals continued in the decades afterwards. Here in Gotham, home to 42 daily foreign language newspapers in 1914, a Norwegian paper ran until 2006, and the Norwegian Siemens Church in Manhattan is still going strong. The once divided Nordic communities have also reached out to each other, so that relatively small Scandinavian communities now wield united influence in impressively modern venues, such as Scandinavia House. So if you visit this unusual midtown building, all but declaring itself architecturally the headquarters for Nordic culture in New York City, you might consider the fact that such emblems of foreign culture were not always so welcome. Even here, in the place known for the welcoming arms of Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty. It bears keeping in mind how even the Scandinavians were deemed stinky roundheads and herring eaters who would dilute the gene pool if they were allowed to propagate. Despite these sometimes lukewarm receptions, these immigrants from more than 100 years ago inserted their own ideas into our national fabric. As a country, it's important we consider the understated but impressive contributions these small, often neglected ethnic groups have made to the shape of American culture. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcast at GothamCenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. 